Welcome back to Speaking of Wounds, a podcast by the Wound Care Learning Network. I'm your moderator, Martha Kelso. I'm a registered nurse and CEO of Wound Care Plus. I'm also an expert witness, and today we have a special guest with us, Steve Heisler. Steve, would you introduce yourself and tell us your credentials? My name is Steve Heisler. I'm an attorney in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I started uh, the National Injured Senior Law Center a couple years ago. Uh, I handle all types of injury cases, including medical negligence, nursing home negligence. Uh, so, uh, and like I said, I've been doing it for for a long time. So, I have a podcast. The Injured Senior Podcast, where we discuss issues of importance to the injured senior and elderly population, and uh, that podcast can be found at InjuredSeniorHotline.com slash podcast. Steve, what's your contact information if someone needs to get in touch with you? They can contact me at Steve at InjuredSeniorHotline.com. Is there a phone number they could call? Absolutely. They can call me at uh, 410-625-4878. I also take calls on my cell phone, 443-854-2471. I know they're going to want to get in touch with you after this podcast. You're such <laughs> a great resource. Steve, yeah. this is so exciting. I'm so thrilled to have you join me with a legal podcast for the Wound Care Learning Network. Thank you for agreeing to do this. It is my pleasure, Martha. You've been a guest on my podcast, so uh, it's it's always a pleasure to uh, to kind of reverse the roles. Yeah, I think that legal pitfalls are oftentimes what healthcare people are probably least schooled in. Would you mind explaining kind of the anatomy of a lawsuit if someone's going to be, you know, if they want to um, start a lawsuit for wrongful death or medical malpractice, do you mind explaining the anatomy? Sure. So if, let's start with uh, a wrongful death. Um, So there's different requirements for a bodily injury claim, uh, uh, a negligence claim uh, as opposed to a medical malpractice claim. In a negligence claim, let's say that uh, someone was injured, uh, they would have to uh, send letters of notice to or letters of representation to the defendant, whether it be an institution or, uh, you know, uh, uh, any, any person that committed the wrong. And they would have to basically explain exactly what happened uh, and let the institution know that they are seeking uh, damages for their harms and losses. Uh, What happens next is that then usually uh, there's uh, discovery as far as getting the records, getting information about what happened, getting the medical records from medical providers such as the listeners here today, uh, and getting those records uh, and building your case so that you do have a viable claim that can be either resolved by settlement or taken to court. So before we actually go to court on a negligence claim, uh, we do 
collect the records and do our due diligence. And then we go to the medical or, or go to the institution. And usually it's the insurance company for the, for the, 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 the person who committed the wrong. They usually have uh, insurance and we try to settle it uh, because that is the preferred way to do things. Uh, the courts, especially now with COVID-19, are very, very um, backed up. And so it just for uh, for everyone's sake, they, they like it to, to get resolved. That way uh, they don't have to clog up the courts. And when you go to court, you don't know what is going to happen. So it kind of gives relief to both sides if it can be settled. So, however, um, if it can't be settled, then a suit has to be filed if the person does want to continue on. So if they file a lawsuit that is filed in uh, the county where the accident happened or where the defendant resides, uh, and they basically, from that point, the court has a scheduling order as to what has to happen uh, before uh, it can go actually to trial. So that's a negligence claim. And the, thing, the reason I said the difference between a negligence and medical malpractice, there is medical negligence, but if it's medical negligence, you have to provide an expert that says that the negligence committed by the medical provider uh, is, you know, that has to identify what that negligence is and that that expert, that medical expert says they believe that there was a breach of the standard of care. So if there's a breach of the standard of care, then that gets you, uh, that opens up the door and allows you then to proceed with your medical negligence claim. In a regular negligence claim, which doesn't involve a medical institution or a doctor uh, or a medical provider, you don't need an expert in order to uh, be able to proceed with your case. You should have an expert when you go to court or, or, or you know, when you are um, proceeding with the case, you should have an expert because sometimes in order to make a, a connection between the damages that happen and the negligence, you would need an expert to say, yes, there was negligence, this was the negligence, and uh, you still need that. But that happens later on in the case when you're at trial. If you don't have an expert in a regular negligence case, it could get thrown out, but it's still, you'd still don't need to have that medical expert in order to go to step two uh, in, a, in, in a negligence claim. You later on need them, but in a medical malpractice claim, you need that expert, medical expert right away to be able to even start your case. Do you find that wounds are some of the top litigated events for medical malpractice or um, you know, breach of standard of care, those type of lawsuits? Yes. Um, so you have, you have the, the wound care issues, not, not only in medical malpractice settings, more in nursing home negligent cases. Because in nursing home cases, uh, they're a, a person uh, who has, um, could have all types of different comorbidities or issues. Uh, you know, they could have been sent over uh, from the hospital or from a rehab for long-term care. Uh, and there the person has, uh, the re they're there for another reason normally, but as a result of a myriad of things, 
they they could develop a bed sore uh, or a pressure ulcer. And as you have so eloquently informed my listeners, uh, that can happen because of a lot of reasons. But a lot of times, sometimes it's, it just happens. But a good amount of times, it actually is is due to uh, the indifference or uh, just um, plain forgetfulness of the staff to be diligent in making sure that this person doesn't get a pressure ulcer. So could it be dietary issues that that that, that are causing it or are a big cause of it, or the fact that they haven't been turned on a consistent basis? So those are yeah. They're, and and unfortunately, another issue is that well maybe um, they have a pressure ulcer, but it's not adequately dealt with, uh, and so all those different uh, issues are 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 causes of action that we usually file on behalf of a person from a nursing home that has those type of issues. On my end, doing some of the expert witness cases that I do across the country, I find that wounds are poorly understood, even by uh, doctors and the medical community in general, and even um, how wounds occur. And there's a, a misnomer that all pressure ulcers occur from outside in, from pressure causing tissue damage from the outside in. And sometimes pressure can occur from the inside out, whether it's through friction or shearing. Sometimes nursing homes are taking patients that already, or residents that already have tissue damage at the level of the bone, but we can't see it with the naked eye. And we're not recognizing some of those predisposing factors. They had prolonged surgery. They had, you know, or multiple prolonged surgeries that was already causing the tissue to compress and become damaged, then they're being admitted from the hospital to the nursing home and we see the wounds two or three or four days into admission and the nursing homes assume that they're causing those wounds when in fact the damage was done pre-admission. We just didn't do a good job of documenting that they may already have tissue damage in place at the time of admission. Do you see cases like that? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I will also say, um, Martha, that you, you really raise a really good point in that as attorneys, well, you know, we learn a lot about medical um, standards of care and, and just medical issues from doing this. However, one thing that the listeners should know is that we really rely on people like yourself who are experts in wound care to tell us exactly what the breach is. So we can usually spot the issues or spot what we think is a breach, but then we would go to you because, because again, remember in medical negligence cases, we need an expert to certify that there's an actual case. And the so we would go to someone like you or to some of our listeners and say, yeah, you know, um, we think that there, we, there was a pressure ulcer. There's no question about that. But these are the reasons why we think that they, uh, you know, that the medical institution or the nursing home was negligent. Is that the case? So, yeah, you can be very helpful to us. Uh, and that's why it's great that we, you know, we can have these working relationships 
So I forgot what your what your original question was. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was curious if you see that oftentimes the wounds were predisposed or even present on admission, just poorly documented. And even what percent of the time are you seeing that in litigation cases? Yeah, we are seeing those. Um, you know, the bottom line is that uh, nursing homes, as we all know, and assisted living facilities and, and long-term care settings, they're just understaffed. Uh, and there is a skilled nursing in nursing homes, but again, uh, they don't, I don't believe just in my experience that they're getting, uh, they're giving the attention that's necessary, uh, to make sure that the person when they come in, uh, is actually, uh, you know, they don't spot the issues as they're coming in. They want to get them in, uh, a lot of, and a lot of times the nurses who are the boots on the ground, uh, they're the ones that are supposed to be kind of really, really diligent in making sure that they don't miss anything. And look, mistakes are made. But again, uh, you've got a lot of things going on with people that are being admitted into nursing homes. So a lot of times um, they only address the, the most pressing issue. Uh, and so, yeah, unfortunately, uh, especially when the pressure ulcer, you know, the origin of it is not really um, something that they can recognize right away. Uh, that's that that happens. Yeah. So one of the terms you used was standard of care. How do you define standard of care in the court's eyes? So the standard of care is what is uh, the responsibility of the provider uh, and what in the industry is the recognized uh, way that things should be done. So it's really protocol and what is the recognized protocol. Uh, and obviously that, that has to be um, articulated by, by a medical provider or a medical person who is an expert in the field. So you, when you're having the standard of care out, uh, outlying to a court, you, you have to bring in somebody that obviously has uh, a, a really good CV, a really good uh, resume, someone who's had a lot of experience, somebody who's board certified, uh, somebody who is recognized by their peers as someone who is really, really, uh, or has exceptional expertise in the area that is being litigated. So the standard of care really is what is the recognized um, obligations in order to to do a or meet the recognized standards. Um, and there's been times when an expert has been, uh, you know, the expert's opinion has been repudiated by the by the court because they weren't able to show that that standard that that expert either didn't have the credentials. Uh, or uh, the standard of care was not, you know, the nationally or internationally recognized standard of care. The latter isn't really, that doesn't happen that much, but they do go after the credentials of the expert. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really, uh, that's something. Uh, so we, so I think on our end, we have to make sure that when we bring in an expert, it's somebody that is going to be able to withstand uh, uh, introspection from the other side. Uh, so that, yeah, so that's really a, an important thing. Um, but the standard of care is uh, 
and, and it's also something which is published uh, in in articles or scholarly journals. Uh, so that's really what the, you know what the standard of care is and and what needs to be done and in order to to move forward with the case. And regulations. I feel like the regulations kind of set the bar for some of the standards of care, but the regulations to me are the minimum standard of care. <laughs> the right. Threshold of what you should meet. And sometimes we're just barely meeting the, the minimum regulations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to, and you know, there has to be, um, you know, the, as an expert, you, you know, you want to make sure that the jury or the, or the judge really feel comfortable that that standard of care that you outlined uh, is, is reasonable. You know, um, again, jurors and judges and even the attorneys, you know, we're lay people as far as, as far as the medical um, industry and, and what the standards are and, even what the regulations are. So we count on someone like you or your listeners to come in and educate, uh, you know, the, uh, the term, you know, the uh, fact finders, the juries, the judges to educate them about what they need to know to be able to rule on, on this medical negligence case. If you had two pieces of advice for, doctors or nurse practitioners on how they could protect themselves from litigation. What two things should they introduce to their practice today to help, uh, you know, shore up the fences? Well, I think the number one thing is that they have to make sure that everything is properly documented. Um, A lot of times we're able to proceed with a case because uh, a questionable medical procedure or something that the doctor did uh, is not properly documented. Um, so if they uh, are get, you know, ordering some type of treatment or plan, they have to make sure that it's documented uh, and that also why they're doing it. Again, they don't have to write a you know, war and peace on why they're doing it, but they, they, they have to, you know, again, be able to withstand uh, any type of uh, cross-examination from the from the attorney for the plaintiff, and they have to. And if it's if and if it's not documented, then it you know then then it is just it, it makes the finder of fact say, well, he says he did it, but it's not in the notes, it's not in the records, um, or. The other thing is that uh, uh, sometimes uh, medical providers, uh, when they're when they're writing, so now everything is going to electronic. However, we do see a lot of um, records that are handwritten, and a lot of times you can't read what is being said. So, uh, and that that also is 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 a cause of action. A lot of times when a prescription is written. And the the pharmacist can't, you know, they they fill the wrong prescription because they really weren't sure exactly what it was that was prescribed. So, yeah, so it's important that the records, are, that they consider the records um, to be a very, very important part of preserving their medical licenses. 
Uh, you know, that, that, you know, it's going to come down to the records. The other thing is, I think also medical providers, look, medical providers make mistakes. Um, however, I think if a mistake's been made, instead of trying to, well, of course they want to defend it, but I think a lot of times when I, we have clients that call us, they are more upset by the way they were treated by the medical provider um, or the institution itself. It's, it's usually indifference. Uh, a lot of times it's contempt. Um, and had that medical provider or institution reached out, apologized, you know, I've had, I've had a couple of situations where uh, the clients came back to me and said, look, they apologized. Um, and yeah, what happened to my loved one was a horrific thing, but I, I we, we think we're just going to let it go because it can't bring the person back. Um, and, and they were truly, truly sorry and repentant for what happened. So those are just a couple of things. You know, we had a case once, it's not a pressure ulcer case. We had a case where a nursing home, uh, an Alzheimer's resident actually um, got out into the courtyard in like 10 degree weather uh, and froze to death. And we were, I was called by the daughter, but the nursing, and she was looking for her options, but the nursing home was extremely understanding, compassionate. And she said, I, I just, you know, I, I, you know, I can't bring them back and I, I really don't want to do anything to, um, you know, to hurt the nursing home. And I'm sure that they're going to correct whatever problem that led to it, to led to his death. But so those are two things I think that are important medical records and also just bonding with the patients through good or bad. I agree with that. We, we talk inside of my company about, you know, our job is to give them options as the patient or the resident, give them options. Their job is to choose an option. They're in charge. They're in the driver's seat. But the one thing we don't want to do is break their trust. So we have to be honest with them. I don't know if I can heal this. It's really bad. You've, you know, smoked for 40 years. Your blood flow is bad. You're eating crap, not managing your diabetes, which is fine if that's you living your best life. But I can't have a magic wand where I can heal this. So we can make it palliative. We can try to keep your leg fully attached for the rest of your life. It's probably going to end up in amputation. I'm going to do my best to prevent that with what you're giving me. But I'm not, I'm not magic. I'm not a magic wand. Um, and then, you know, if the patient or the resident decides or the family decides, look, we're going to toe the line, we're going to eat as best we can, we want to keep that leg attached, you know, uh, it changes that from a palliative wound to a healable wound. But if they don't, and smoking is their one enjoyment in life, and they've done it for 60 years, and they're not going to put it down, oh, I'm okay with that. But let's be honest and have an honest discussion instead of promising you that I can heal this thing with no blood flow or no oxygen. <laughs> right. So you, you don't want to give them unrealistic expectations. But the interesting thing, Martha, is that you are the CEO uh, of Wound Care Plus. So you set the bar. And it, it, what your um, employees do when they go into the nursing homes or go into medical 
uh, facilities and do wound care is coming is you you make the edict so they have to follow that i think some of the problems we see is that for the most part there's no um comprehensive policies from the medical institutions as to how they should be uh interfacing with the patients and with the families you do have some doctors that just know it's the right thing to do and so they do it but there's a lot of doctors that that don't uh and that gets that that doctor in trouble and it gets the institution in trouble it's more collaborative when the bedside nurse and the medical director or primary care doctor and the wound specialist and the DON were all on the same page about that wound. We're all giving the same messaging to the patient, the DPOA, the resident. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes the wound specialist is saying, this is clearly not healable. It's going to go south. And the bedside nurse, maybe not fully understanding the nature of wounds, is saying, well, it looks fine to me. I don't know why they can't heal it. <laughs> you know, you're not a magician. Right. Not no. a magician. <laughs> right. The interesting thing is usually shift changes. Mm-hmm. So there's like, it's almost as if that the, when they're handing the ball off to the person that's coming in, they don't know what's going on, or maybe they haven't read the nurse's notes or just haven't been uh, apprised of what the situation is. So a, a family member might hear one thing from the, you know, the, the, the nurse for the previous shift and then the, ner- the new person coming and says, well, I don't know. And so, yeah, again, they're just being left in, in the dark. And I mean, I, I hear this all the time from uh, patients and their families that they're not getting one consistent message. Now, sometimes you can't give a consistent message because things are changing it a lot. You know, that could be if someone comes in who's in cardiac arrest and you don't know what's going to happen in five minutes. But a person that's, you know, a pressure ulcer is, uh, you know, that, that, that usually is, you know, something that is happening over a period of time. And so they should be able to address it um, in consistently, I think. I mean, it's just what I say. Do you agree with that? I do. I, do. I, totally, I totally agree with that. And I, I even make the, sometimes I see the notes in our charts about, well, the nurse said, the family said. Uh Did you pick up the phone and call the family? We don't want to play the game of telephone and the family member may have questions for you. And sometimes I hear uh, staff or advanced wound specialists even say, well, I didn't call the son because he wasn't the DPOA, the patient's in their right mind. Yeah. So ask the patient, do you care if I pick up the phone and call your son? Because as long as the patient's giving permission for us to communicate with their family members, if something happens with, you know, dad's leg or his bottom, and then he passes away, the family is the one that's going to sue. The patient's long gone, but the family is the one that we didn't keep informed because they weren't the DPOA, and we didn't take time to stop and ask the patient or the <laughs> resident, resident, do you care if we have this discussion with your son? Um, you know, Again, it's a little things. It's, yeah, it's right. I mean, it's just something as simple as that. And I wanted to point, I'm, and I looked down briefly because I was just writing, I didn't want to forget. Something else that I think that our listeners should know um, is contrary to, you know, to what a lot of people think and what insurance companies say uh, and politically um, is put out there in the media or whatever, is that all, you know, we're just looking to file as many lawsuits as we can. And, you know, we're just looking to 
put the nursing homes and the medical institutions out of business. That, that cannot be f- further from the truth. Right. We get, for every 100 cases we get, we may take one or two. You know, and that's because a lot of times the medical provider actually um, maintain that standard of care. And we, we tell, you know, we tell the clients or potential clients, look, um, we did a thorough investigation. Again, it's record driven and we read the records and it looks like the person met the standard of care. Mm-hmm. It, we just can't follow the suit and, and snap our fingers and we're in court uh, and we have a case. We actually have to do a lot of investigation, speak to experts. We, a lot of times we have experts that are on retainer that we, we can just give uh, the records to and say, look, this is what we see. What do you see? And, and do we have a case? Um, it's also very expensive that, that you, you, your listeners should know that attorneys, for us to pursue a medical malpractice case, experts are not cheap. Yeah. And you know, when we get an expert, uh, we have to pay for you know the retainer, and then there's um, obviously the record review that is expensive, and then if we have to take the deposition, uh, the expert charges you know a reasonable fee, but it's it's expensive. We can spend on on a ca- we can spend on a case anywhere from you know, seventy five thousand to three four hundred thousand dollars, depending on how much uh, is involved. So. We don't just file suit because we're just looking to have an uptick in cases. You know, we want to get we want to get it right, and we want to make sure that if there's if there's a case there, uh, you know, then we will will pursue it. But most of the time, there's not cases, so that really is a ringing endorsement of the medical community. You know, so I love that, Steve. I am so glad that you joined us for this discussion, and I think the legal side of wound care is sometimes poorly understood. And uh, I know that we're out of time, but I, I want to thank you so much for joining us and helping our listeners tune in. Do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I, I, yeah, my final thoughts are just keep up your good work because again, uh, we know that uh, medical, uh, you know, medical institutions do a phenomenal job. Mistakes happen, uh, but for the most part, they do a great job. Document, what you do, uh, have good relations with, uh, you know, with the patients and their families, uh, and just be understand that attorneys are really there to try to make sure that if something, if there's negligence on the part of the institution or on part of a medical professional, that that person has to be held accountable. But also, a lot of times, it highlight something that the institution might not even have been aware of and changes are made so that doesn't happen again. So, you know, I think those are things to keep in mind, uh, kind of like on a, you know, you know, as far as parting, you know, a party message. I love that. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in also, and be sure to check out the woundcarelearningnetwork.com for more podcasts, articles, and videos on various topics in wound care. Also, be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We hope you tune in next week for our next podcast guests on Speaking of Wounds.